Welcome to You Belong. I'm your host, author D. Michelle, encouraging you to remove that label, that title, that position, or even that social media status and focus on your kingdom status by knowing you belong to God first. And when God is first, that's when you can fit in even when you don't because you know you belong. Welcome to the You Belong broadcast. Today I have a really great guest who's going to get us to get out of our guts and into our heads, so to speak. And his name is Dr. Gleb Sapersky. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gleb. Thank you so much for having me on, Michelle. It's a pleasure. Yes. Yeah, so just read and share a little bit more of our audience about you and why I introduce you that way. Dr. Gleb is known as the disaster avoidance expert. Not saying you might have a disaster in your business or your life, but he's the one that's going to help you even avoid getting near that. He's on a mission to protect leaders from dangerous judgment errors known as cognitive biases. And that really devastates some bottom lines and even some hearts sometimes and bring down high flying careers, not to mention the culture within a company. And so he's written a couple books, one being Never Go With Your Gut. How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. He's also written a few other books, The Truth Seeker's Handbook, A Science-Based Guide, and The Blind, and the blind Spot Between It, How to Overcome Unconscious Cognitive Bias, and Building Better or Build Better Relationships. His expertise stems from his research background as a behavioral economics and cognitive neuroscientist with over 15 years in academia, including seven years, and I have to say it this way, at the Ohio State University. <laughs> Welcome Go to Bucks. the show again. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more how you fell into this topic area of avoiding disasters and avoiding your gut, so to speak. Hmm. Well, I fell into it partially because of my parents, who were very gut-oriented people, and they had a lot of decision-making that went wrong, <laughs> that they then had lots of fights with each other, lots of conflicts. So as a kid, you know, let's say my mom liked nice clothing, and so she'd go out and buy a $50 sweater, and she'd come back home, and my dad yelled, would yell at her because he would say that no sweater should cost over $20. So stuff like that, really little silly things that... I already as a kid saw that it wasn't worth fighting over, especially the amount of fighting they did. But they had big conflicts too. I remember this, especially one big one where my dad, uh, so he was a real estate agent and he had variable salary that was based on commissions. And then at one time he made a lot of money, but he hid it from my mom, said that he made very little money. <laughs> and he bought an apartment elsewhere, leased it out for a couple of years until my mom found out. And when she found out, she was very pissed. She was very upset. It was just an issue of trust, you know? Right. So she could, she felt like she could no longer trust him. They end up separating for a while, and I stayed with my mom. And you know, being separated from my dad, that was a, that was really hard for me. So th and seeing that it resulted from some really bad decision making was very challenging. Wow. And they they reconciled eventually, but I mean, she could never really trust him again. And just as a kid, that really impacted me. So I saw that you know my adults, that my parents weren't gods, and they made some really bad decisions that resulted in some disastrous situations for them. And then I was growing up and I was looking more around me as I grew up, was no longer a kid. I was born in 81. So I was 18 in 1999 when the tech leaders were partying like it's 1999 when the dot-com mm -hmm. boom. And then just a couple of years later, 
you know, there was a dot-com bust when I was 21 in 2002. So all of these companies, Webvan, Peds.com, Boo.com, the tech leaders were in the Wall Street Journal for all the right reasons in 1999 and then in, for all the wrong reasons in 2002. Lots of people lost their, I mean, it was billions of dollars of losses. Yeah, a lot investors. of money was lost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and many people lost their life savings and it was just kind of tragic mm -hmm. to see that. And even worse were the Enron, WorldCom, Tyco, mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, all of those scandals around that time where some of the corporate leaders used fraudulent accounting methods to hide their losses. And then, you know, I mean, they were in front pages of the Wall Street Journal in handcuffs in a couple of years, going mm -hmm. to jail for long periods of time. And they made such terrible decisions. And this was maliciously bad decision making. They right. knew that they, what they were doing was wrong. And they knew that it would, they, it would be uncovered. That's kind of the ridiculous thing. They knew it would be uncovered in a couple of years. They could make it last. But they did it. And people still do it all the time, these sorts of fraudulent accounting things. They mm -hmm. still do it all the time, even though it's uncovered and they go to jail. And it really puzzled me. It made me see that even the most prominent business leaders who are supposed to be, you know, the, again, the gods of decision-making, the, you know, these awesome decision-makers, they make horrible decisions all the time. So mm -hmm. I wanted to understand what's going on. And I decided to study this topic. I decided, I went, I studied it. I became a consultant, coach, trainer in this topic. So I've been doing that for the last 20 years. And I went into academia, as you said. So I went, I got a PhD in cognitive neuroscience and behavioral economics. That's my area of expertise. How do people make decisions in economic settings? So I've been doing academia for 15 years. And I've combined that experience of the cutting edge research and how do we avoid these very serious problems that come with following our intuitions and trusting our gut reactions as the Bernie Ebers of the world did with Tycho, WorldCom, and Enron. Mm -hmm. And the pragmatic experience I have of consulting, coaching, and training leaders on these topics for the last 20 years. And that has resulted in this newest book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. So that's my background. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that in the journey. And I love how you're able to connect both what you saw as a child relationally and then being able to connect that even when we're in business with relationships and how we're making decisions, we're bringing some of those same type of thought processes or even gut, so to speak, reactions into those relationships. I love how you were able to make that connection. And I've been skimming through your book, haven't gotten through the whole piece yet, but I wanted us to kind of focus today on one particular chapter I really like where you talk about how confidence can that's one thing that leaders are always champion that yeah. you must have confidence good leaders have confidence and how that really could end up being that pride that goes before the fall so to speak that yes. you end up trusting in the wrong things could you share a little bit more um from that chapter with the audience about that confidence and how that can get you into trouble as a leader Yes, well, it's an unfortunate fact that confidence is one of the worst traits a leaders can have because the confidence has been shown by research to cause leaders to make really bad decisions. Hmm. Let me, and it works for all sorts of uh, situations. I'll give you an interesting example. So there was a study done on very definitive, clear case studies with doctors who were evaluated on their confidence. So they were given both simple and complex medical cases where they were given a number of symptoms and said to identify, you know, what's the cause of these symptoms. And they were given of these simple cases. In simple cases, they were able to identify the cause of the symptom 
around 55% of the time, which is pretty good if all you have is symptoms and you can't do any more testing. So 55% of the time, they were able to identify the simple cases. The complex cases, they were able to identify only 5% of the time. So 5% of the time is when they were able to identify what was the cause of the complex cases. Not that great. Their confidence in their ability to identify the simple cases was a confidence of 72%. So they said, you know, with 72% confidence, they were able to identify simple cases. So they were somewhat overconfident. They were only Mm -hmm. able to identify 55%, but their confidence was 72%. So they were, you know, 20% or so overconfident. But Mm -hmm. the interesting thing is the complex cases. They were, their confidence and their ability to identify the complex cases was 64%, but they were only right 5% of the time. Wow. Wow. Let's just repeat that for people what that means on an index scale. So before you were saying there was maybe a 20% overconfidence, but there we're looking at a couple hundred percent (laughs) overconfidence when you have a complex uh, medical case or situation. And on this show, we talk faith and business. And and that's why it's so important to know your root and your core and not just put Mm. all your confidence in man, so to speak. Exactly. Wow. That's huge. Yep. And that is the same, goes the same for business leaders when we evaluate their simple business decisions and their everyday things that they're used to. They're slightly overconfident in their capacity. And so they mm-hmm. make some mistakes, but not that many mistakes. The big problem for overconfident leaders, which most leaders unfortunately tend to be reinforced, they tend to be praised for being confident comes in complex cases. And those are, of course, the most important situations Mm -hmm. for business decision-making. So let's consider mergers and acquisitions. One of the biggest, biggest decisions a leader can make is whether to do a merger or an acquisition and how to do a merger and acquisitions. So this is a very complex case. It has a lot, a lot of moving parts, very difficult things, but leaders go into it with a lot of confidence and they make decisions. And unfortunately, What the research shows on mergers and acquisitions is that about 80% of them fail. So 80% of mergers and acquisitions fail to create value. They actually destroy value. So if you look at the separate valuation Mm -hmm. of two companies before the merger and acquisition, and then look at a couple of years later at the combined valuation, they would be less. The combined valuation of the companies would be less. And of course, you never want to do a merger and acquisition that would result in the combined valuation of less, you know, you you ideally do merger and acquisition to get rid of some backend problems and reinforce each other's strengths. So it's horrible, but it's true that 80% of mergers and acquisitions fail because leaders go into it with too much confidence. So that's wow. one example. Same thing when you make a complex hire. So you make a hire for top level positions, C-suite positions, key positions. Leaders tend to be way too confident about these hires and lots of these hires go wrong because leaders tend to be too confident. That's another example. Then look at large projects. Leaders, let's say, who are launching, let's say you're building a new headquarters or a new Mm -hmm. division of your, whatever you're doing, or you're integrating a new database, large complex IT project. We know that large building projects go over time and over budget, the research shows, by about 86%. And so 86% of them go over time and over budget. Yep. That's true. IT, yep, large IT projects go over time and over budget 84% of the time, 84% of the time. And when they do go over time and over budget, they go over time and over budget by about 189%. 
So yeah. Can we pause right there on that? Because I've seen that happen a lot over the years. I've only been consulting probably about six. Well, I guess it is about eight, eight years now. But mm-hmm. I know with every IT project or innovation, we always start out with those kind of statistics and we share with clients or caution like, oh, it's probably going to go over budget by a mm-hmm. huge amount. And somehow the leader's still like, yep, but we need this. We're committed. So <laughs> what do you recommend for consultants when you're trying to deal with that leader that may be really confident? You're giving them a statistic and they're like, we're going to run this different. And you're like, no, every single IT project I've been on, to mm-hmm. kind of remap the workflow or what this is going to cost some serious money. How would you um, advise a consultant to try to help someone who is overconfident in that gut? Yeah. So what I do in these sorts of cases, and this is what the research suggests is you look at previous projects that they've done and you have them integrate the information into the new projects because the problem with leaders very often with projects. And this is a, the, the, the tendency, the specific tendency here, the cognitive bias that we're talking about is mm-hmm. the planning fallacy. The planning yep. fallacy is where we tend to feel good about ourselves. You know, it's coming, it all comes from our gut. It all comes from our intuitions. We feel good about ourselves. We like ourselves. We feel good about our plans. We like our plans. So we think everything will go according to plan the way we laid things out. Well, unfortunately, our plans actually very rarely survive contact with the enemy. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And so this is a big problem when people have the phrase that failing to plan is planning to fail. This is a misleading phrase, failing to plan is planning to fail, because it says that you know, if you make a plan, everything will be great. That's the meaning of the phrase. That's the literal, you know, reading Mm -hmm. of the phrase. And that's not how things work. The real phrase should be the way that people should think is failing to plan for problems is planning to fail. Again, failing to plan for problems is planning to fail. If you're running any complex project, either any new project or any complex project, or especially a combination of the two, you will have many unanticipated problems. You'll have many unanticipated risks, unanticipated contingencies. So what you always want to do with these sorts of projects is evaluate. If you did a similar project in the past, evaluate what happened there, what went wrong. Mm -hmm. Many people don't and Mm -hmm. incorporated that into the project and look at what other people did. How much did they spend on this, how, what kind of problems they ran into and mm-hmm. incorporate that into your plans. So then you, can, you need to adjust the plan to make it realistic, to make it more aligned with the timeline and aligned with the money. So uh, I worked with a company in Pittsburgh that was a heavy manufacturing company. It did bids on heavy manufacturing projects. So, and it always had this planning fallacy problem. It would bid three million, and the project would cost five million. It would bid mm-hmm. seven million, the project would end up being ten million, and that was a problem for the company because their profit margins were much lower than they should have been, and mm-hmm. they sometimes lost money on projects. So what we ended up doing, and uh, I went, I looked at their as a consultant, they hired me as a consultant. I looked at their process. They didn't have a process of evaluating what went wrong in the previous project when they were doing, mm-hmm. and integrating that into their future bids. So once they did that, they were able to very uh, uh, accurately make a future bid. So if they bid 3 million, it would cost around 3 million, maybe 3.5 at the maximum. If they build 7 million, it would cost you know, 7 million, around 7 million, maybe a little bit more. And the people they were bidding 
for, for projects, they were much more willing to accept a higher bid because the company wrote in the risks and the problems mm. into the bid. They said, hey, here's what happened before. We know what tends to happen. Here's what's likely to happen. Here are the kind of problems that might occur. And here's what we will do to address them. This is why the bid is higher than many other, you know, we're not going to be the lowest bidder, but we're going to be a realistic bidder. And we will make sure that we have, we have the experience. And here's our experience. Here's how we address problems in the past successfully. So they were still winning bids, but they were actually coming in much, you know, at a much higher profit margins for themselves after they did so. So this is the same kind of time, this is the same kind of strategy you want to do if you're implementing a new IT project or anything like that. You want to look at the what went wrong in other people's IT projects or your mm -hmm. own past IT projects, ideally a combination of both, and say, these are the kinds of problems we're likely to run into. So let's adjust the plan to be more realistic and in accordance with these sorts of problems. Okay, I like that. I love that. Because uh, adjusting the plan and, you know, there's also a quote, you know, we make plans, but uh, <laughs> the, what ultimate is going to happen is even out of our control, but at least having those scenarios. And like you said, some people accuse you of not being optimistic when you have, like you said, a plan for a problem or if this happens that, but that's called scenario risk adverse. And so I love that you uh, caution your clients to do that and start putting that in. And it sounds like that's helped with their bids and moving forward. Um, it, it, what it else is something that um, mm -hmm. you want to bring out from this book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disaster? Outside of confidence, what's another big area you think that um, could really help leaders? Another big area, I think, is paying attention to what's going on around you. So this is a big, big, big issue. Uh, chapter six is called, Are You Paying Attention? And unfortunately, what we tend to do and what leaders tend to do is they tend to get stuck on what they're focused on right now, their current strategy, their bottom line. They're not looking at what's happening in the external context, in the external environment, and what's going on there. So I had a client, for example, who was focusing very much on their bottom line, and it's a manufacturing client in the central Ohio area where I'm based, so go back. <laughs> so uh, they were looking at what was going on. They were focusing on their bottom line and they didn't anticipate and predict the impact of the political situation and the tariffs that were going on with China right now. And mm. that caused them to be really seriously harmed by the tariffs because a lot of their exports and imports were in were in relation to China. Was, their supply chain really depended on China. So that was a big problem. Their revenue fell by 30% within six months. And that was that was a serious, of course, issue. You know, revenue yeah. falling by 30% in six months, that was pretty bad for them due to the tariffs that they really didn't anticipate and they didn't really think about. They weren't paying attention to the political situation. I and mean, this is often a problem for business leaders that they're not paying attention to the political situation. And the mm -hmm. political situation is going to be more impactful for them than they anticipate. I mean, let's say if you're a healthcare company, if you're not paying attention to the issues with insurance, Obamacare, and so on, that is a big problem for you. And I had a client who, who fell into that trap, who weren't, wasn't paying attention. So needing to pay attention to what's, and even to the movers and shakers. Let's say I was working with a regional insurance company and one of the problems that it fell into was that it didn't pay attention to the fact that Amazon was moving into the insurance business and its insurance was seriously undercut by Amazon moving into the insurance business. And that was a 
pretty big problem for them. So needing to pay attention not only to your own bottom line, not only to your own strategy, but to the external context, the environment, whether it's the political environment, whether it's what your competitors are doing. If you're not scanning your environment for risks and for problems, if you're not paying attention to what's going on outside of your company, the external factors, and not even your immediate customers, clients, vendors, but competitors, you know, politics, whatever, the broader economy, you're going to run into serious trouble. Yes, absolutely. I I try to recommend for clients to do that at least one time a year, come Mm -hmm. together and do that. But sometimes you have such climates environmentally or politically that can impact your business that you might need to do it more frequently, maybe twice a year, you know. But that is definitely something that comes in play when people get too linear or tunnel vision, so to speak, just focused on that, (laughs) what's ahead of them and not taking a look up and around. So that's important. So now I want to turn it and get, I mean, you shared earlier, uh, this um, passion of yours for this work came from your own childhood, but I was wondering if you were willing to share with the audience, I always put people in the hot seat of like, what's the moment you felt like, wow, I really don't belong. I don't fit in into traditional thinking. It can either be from personal or business world where you're like, I just really don't fit the traditional mold. Mm. Can you share with us when that would have been? Yeah, I think once I learned that I was learning about decision making and doing training, consulting and coaching, and once I saw that the current business advice and going with your gut, following your intuition, you know, all the Tony Robbins of the world, all the, you know, says be primal and be savage and whatnot, and Malcolm Gladwell, who says blink, that their advice really was not fitting in with the current research on cognitive biases on the cutting edge decision-making research, I realized that what's going on there is essentially what was going on with medicine about a hundred years ago, when you had doctors selling snake oil, which was a mixture of cocaine, alcohol, and sugar, you know, to Mm -hmm. make you feel good in the moment. You know, that's where Coca-Cola actually originally came from. So Mm -hmm. that it would make you feel good in the moment, but it wouldn't take care of the symptoms. And I really became disillusioned and disenchanted with the current, with that advice on decision-making, what was going on in these business gurus, the kind of things that they were feeding people. And I realized that medicine has progressed since a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, if a do- now, if a doctor tells you to, you know, eat a box of dozen donuts and sit on your couch and watch Netflix all day, you would hopefully not pay attention to that doctor's advice. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> You you would know that that's not what the current standards of medical research are about. They tell you, you know, you, you maybe you should you, you know avoid that third chocolate chip cookies. You know, two two are a okay, but th- the third one is too much. And mm-hmm. you know, go and exercise thirty minutes a day. You know, put on your sweats, go to the gym, or you know, take a walk or something like that. So I took a look at the research on decision making, actually what's going on in the academia, and that's when I decided to go there. And I realized that. There's a lot of stuff that's hidden in dense academic journals of, you know, that are $30 per journal if you don't have university access per article and that uh, are very dense and hard to get through. So I started looking at this and starting to educate myself and then started, you know, went into academia and I discovered all of these problems in my own thinking that I was, you know, had all of these issues that were, came from my gut reaction. So for example, I learned that my biggest cognitive bias, so one of the things I learned about was that you have to discover your own personality and your own cognitive biases. These decision errors that we're all prone to, we are more prone to them to some extent than others. So planning fallacy, 
some people will be more prone to that than others. Overconfidence, some people will be more prone to that than others. I tend to be very prone to overoptimism. So mm -hmm. that's my biggest problem. Mm -hmm. That means that I tend to be risk blind. I don't tend to see risks that are actually there. I tend to have too high expectations about other people, my projects, my ideas. You know, I tend to think my ideas are brilliant when they're actually not. <laughs> and you know, I tend to think that grass is green and on the other side of the we hill. We all do. <laughs> we all do that. We think our ideas are bigger. <laughs> well, pessimists okay. don't. So that, this is the kind of difference. Oh between yeah, true. So this is the difference between optimist and pessimist. I tend to be mm -hmm. very optimistic. You know, I think the grass is green on the other side of the hill when it's actually yellow. <laughs> so that's something I had to learn about myself. And that was really a challenge for myself and my own thinking to recognize, hey, I'm vulnerable just like everyone else is vulnerable. Unfortunately, I was able to use the methods that I learned in graduate school to address this optimism bias to some extent and be more realistically optimistic. So be able to, to manage my optimism bias. And I learned that each of these cognitive biases is something you can effectively manage. And there are specific effective techniques that I talk about in my book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters, that can help you effectively manage both your individual, whatever cognitive biases you as an individual are most prone to, and decision-making techniques that can help a team as a whole or you as a, as a whole, address a whole bunch of cognitive biases at once. So that was very promising and that was kind of a breakthrough. And I realized that, you know, this is the stage that the evidence-based business essentially is at the stage where evidence-based medicine was a hundred years ago, where I should be in the position of fighting the snakes, the, the snake coil salespeople mm -hmm. of and popularizing that what actually works for a broad audience. Yeah, so I love your um, your label of yourself, the avoid disaster expert. And like you said, you're, you're where medicine was years ago. You want people to avoid the snake oil. You even mentioned earlier different famous gurus. So I'm sure you don't fit in the typical uh, marketing or business no. room with some of your thought process. So how do you handle that when you are faced with other leaders? Just like, hey, you're going too far, Dr. Gleb. There's still something for your gut in the mm -hmm. business world, um, how, how do you face that when your message seems not to belong? When my message seems not to belong, I tell people very honestly that, hey, what I'm doing is just reporting the research. Mm -hmm. And if you don't want to trust the research, you want to trust your gut, you please go ahead and, you know, you'll end up joining the Bernie. I don't necessarily <laughs> say this, but, you know, depending on the situation, you know, if you okay. want to, <laughs> you know, end up where other people are, like, let's say, where Dennis Millenberg, the CEO of Boeing is. I mean, mm -hmm. talk about someone who's over-optimistic. When the Boeing 737 was first grounded, he said that it'll be out, you know, you, that it'll be finished and fixed. It was grounded in March, he said it'll be fixed in June. It was, you know, then June well came around and it wasn't ready. He said, well, it'll be ready in March, in August. Then August came around, it wasn't ready. He said, you know, okay, we'll fly the 737 in October. That wasn't ready. Then he said, we'll fly it in uh, December. In December came, it wasn't ready. It's like, okay, we'll fly it in, you know, March. And that's when the CEO, the, that's when the board of directors of Boeing fired him. <laughs> wow. So, over optimism. So, so I have they, to say, the views and the message of the show today are solely of Dr. Gleb. Uh, <laughs> the You Belong podcast is still open for sponsorship from any of those companies. No, joking. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's okay. No, no, no. The interesting thing is that the Boeing board 
explicitly said that they fired Dennis Muhlenberg for his overly optimistic predictions. Mm, okay. So the board is on board with you and sponsoring right. you, you know. He's not going <laughs> to sponsor you, but he doesn't really have the money of Boeing. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> That's great. I love it. I love it. So, so this uh, is an, a clear example where over-optimism led directly to the firing of a very, very, very senior leader. <laughs> yeah, and, and I... I don't know. It's time to wrap up, but I could just talk to you another couple hours offline about this subject because I'm starting to see, you know, as you were talking about identifying within your own self, what are the cognitive bias you bring to the table? What do you have going on? And I think that's the underlying message of you belong. If we could all realize in the boardroom or in the family life that each one of us is coming to the table with something different. Mm -hmm from a bias standpoint, but being willing to be transparent and hold it out there and get yeah. the best of all of us together to say we all belong and just work on this together versus mm -hmm. just holding it in just like you said, that silent, just follow one person or follow one thought process. So I like that. Yeah, that's very insightful, Michelle. Actually, this is the way that I uh, work together with my wife, who is a pessimist. And so uh, <laughs> yeah. how we do things is that, you know, I have 20 ideas before breakfast. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I think all of them are brilliant, but I have learned that they're not because this is a cognitive bias I fall into. So I give the 20 ideas to her and she's like, well, you know, these are half-baked potatoes. Maybe these three potatoes are worth mm -hmm. finishing baking and, you know, kind of discard the rest. And then her strength as a pessimist is to judging, evaluating, mm -hmm. seeing the flaws and ideas and seeing which ones are worth, you know, taking further. And then she takes these three ideas and she shapes them into, you know, finishes baking them into fully baked potatoes. Yeah. yeah. And that's her strength. So you need to learn how, what are the strengths of the people in the room and what your role should be and what other people's roles should be. You know, a pessimist is going to be bad at brainstorming. They're going mm -hmm. to be really good at the evaluation and yes. taking ideas that are fin that are you know reasonably good and go making them into great so that's their strength whereas an optimist that's not going to be their strength they, they will be their strength is coming up with a whole bunch of ideas and a few of them will be good <laughs> right 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 i look forward to working with you soon <laughs> but yeah exactly that's the strength but again it's finding out we all belong but it's about what role what fit and putting that on and then ultimately yeah. being willing to freely leave the plan open at least those um like i said our anchor and core here you belong is knowing we belong to god we belong to christ and so knowing that whatever we do in the marketplace or in our family life ultimately we're laying it with an open hand and he's gonna order the steps and really direct it but i, I i'm very grateful that he does want us to have wisdom and i'm grateful for people like you that are gifted and skilled and wanting to share this knowledge for people to really think um, soberly about the decisions mm -hmm. they're making, especially in the workplace. So thank you for coming on, Dr. Gleb. Any last words you want to say? How can people reach out to you, get your book, or keep in touch with you? Yeah, so folks can find my book in bookstores everywhere. It's published by a great traditional publisher called Career Press. So again, never go with your gut. How pioneering leaders make the best decisions and avoid business disasters. Find it on Barnes & Noble, your independent bookstores, university bookstores, and of course online and Amazon, again, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, or anywhere else you get your books. You can check out my work on disasteravoidanceexperts.com. Again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com. You'll find a lot of blogs, videos, podcasts, as well as coaching, consulting, training, and so on. And if you want to check out a course on decision-making 101 called the Wise Decision Maker Course, make sure to go to disasteravoidanceexperts.com 
forward slash subscribe. Again, a free course, eight video-based module course at disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe. Finally, connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm very active there, Dr. Gleb Sipurski, G-L-E-B-T-S-I-P-U-R-S-K-Y. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Gleb. It's been a pleasure. You too, Michelle. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate you inviting me on. And that's all we have time for on today's episode of You Belong. As always, I'm your host, author D. Michelle, inviting you to reach out to me on Twitter and Instagram at author D. Michelle, and that's Michelle with two L's. Or you can reach out to me on Instagram and Twitter at Know You Belong, and that's K N O W Y O U B E L O N G. And remember, you belong.